0: They're like, if casual and cool, had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com.
1: In Garbage, we have this saying that the first week you go on tour, your IQ drops 20 points. (laughs) (laughs) However smart you were, you are no longer smart.
2: your speakers up to 11 because it's time for too much effing perspective the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most Spinal tap moments when nothing seems to go right and everything gets kinda weird i'm your host alan keller a comedy writer in la and lead singer of the least heralded chicago band the falling walendas
0: and i'm your co-host alex hoffman former tour manager for radiohead and lead singer of the least heralded milwaukee band the vainglorious Our guest today is Butch Vig. Butch not only
2: produced the Nirvana masterpiece Nevermind, the Smashing Pumpkins classic Siamese Dream, as well as albums by the Foo Fighters, Sonic Youth, Soul Asylum, and Green Day, he is also the drummer in the seminal band Garbage.
0: We're gonna talk to Butch about why he's known as the Nevermind Man instead of the Kickapoo Kid, what Minneapolis band he lifted the term Vibe Crusher from, and how Garbage lead singer Shirley Manson almost failed her audition.
2: So without further ado, let's go to the T-M-E-P show.
1: It really puts perspective on things, doesn't it? Not it too is. much. There's oh, too yeah, much I perspective now.
2: Alex, the population of Viroqua, Wisconsin is 4,472. I mean, I'm from Wisconsin, and I have never, ever heard of the place. And why are you bringing that up? Because our guest today, Butch Vig is from Verrocco, Wisconsin.
0: Well, right. And it's pretty interesting that someone with such small-town roots has made such an enormous impact on the music world.
2: Hey, I kind of remember another couple small-town musicians who have also made their mark on the world. Who are you thinking about? I know you are probably think I was referring to us. But no, I'm talking about (laughs) Squatney's own Nigel Tufnell and David St. Hubbins.
0: Oh, of course. That goes without saying. But with Butch, if the only thing he had ever done in his career was to produce Nirvana's Nevermind album, arguably one of the most influential records of all times, he would still be a legend. And in fact, he's done so much more than that. Don't forget Kurt Cobain, another small town guy from Aberdeen, Washington, also had something to do with that project. He did. And in fact, you know, when you drive into Aberdeen, the town motto is, come as you are. <laughs> What's well,
2: better than saying, Aberdeen, Washington, smells like teen spirit. much better yeah so basically that project was just a bunch of rubes who went out to change the world and they did hey weren't you from a small town in wisconsin too just like butch
0: uh yes beaver dam during my junior high years
2: oh the metropolis beaver dam that's three times larger than viroqua why haven't you changed the world alex what (laughs) Impact have you made? (laughs) You mean this podcast isn't changing the world? Hey, you don't have to get a big complex about it. Quentin Tarantino (laughs) was born literally one day after I was. I had a 24 hour head start on the guy, and he's kind of lapped me a few times. So,
0: (sighs) that is an effing painful perspective, old chum. Let's get to our chat with a super nice guy who hasn't forgotten his small town roots, Butch Vig. But first, listeners, if you haven't heard Quick Taps, are short episodes with short stories for short attention spans, please do. They're here in the feed, and they're about 10 minutes in length. The stories are hilarious, including the time that Billy Idol's keyboard player got left at a Romanian gas station while using a toilet in the middle of the night.
2: Or when my friend Shane Salosky destroyed the amp that John Lennon played at the very last Beatles concert at Candlestick Park. (laughs) That one still hurts, just to say that.
0: It does hurt. So listen to quick taps and you can hurt along with us now to our conversation with butch fig but first a short break hey there i am johnny christ from avenge sevenfold and i've got a podcast called drinks with johnny you're gonna want to check out i sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life from professional wrestlers to actors comedians fighters musicians Everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny. Streaming everywhere now.
1: Hey, everyone. This is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week, I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.
2: And now, a man who attributed 90% of the sound on Nirvana's Nevermind album to drummer Dave Grohl, producer Butch Vig. Butch, I want to say up front that We are all UW-Madison alumni here. We're all Badgers. We all lived in Madison at about the same time in the 1980s. And I remember your band at the time, Spooner, very well, especially their great album, Every Corner Dance, which was the first album I ever saw out of Wisconsin that got reviewed in the Rolling Stone magazine. And frankly, that gave all of us in the Madison music scene hope. And in the case of my band, Channel 83, False hope. So please tell our listeners a little bit about Spooner.
1: Spooner was a new wave pop garage band. And we started making our own albums, very DIY. That's how I learned how to produce really was making the Spooner records. But we had a big following there. And we got signed to a couple indie labels. And there was a point we did the song and dance. We met with Capitol Records and Arista Records. This is like 1981 or 82. And it didn't happen. A quick little anecdote, though. Clive Davis came to see us play in Chicago. It was one of the weirdest gigs we ever had. When we were doing sound check, there was some feedback coming through the PA, and it turns out there was a disgruntled guy who lived across the street, and he was going... Yeah, check out <laughs> Through a CB radio that was channeled into the club PA, and you wow. could not get rid of it. So we told our manager, Peter Love, to go over and distract the guy. <laughs> anyway, there were six fans in the audience, and Clive Davis and his assistant, we were nervous as hell. He didn't offer us an album deal. He offered us a single deal... which our lawyer at the time advised us to turn down because we were talking to Capitol and Electra and a bunch of other labels. You know who the producer would have been? Mutt Lang. Uh, (laughs) Mutt friggin' Lang.
2: Of course, Mutt Lang produced ACDC's Highway to Hell, Def Leppard's Pyromania, Graham Parker, the Boomtown Rats, the Cars.
1: That's who he wanted us to go in the studio with. And thinking back, I'm sure that would have been a groundbreaking chance for us to do something, but he probably would have fired me and most of the band and played most of the instruments himself.
2: (laughs) Well, didn't they say Robert and you didn't know that the Robert was actually Mutt Lang?
1: Yes, it was Robert Lang. (laughs) We found that out years later. It's like, whoa, Clive Davis wanted to go work with Mutt Lang and you know, maybe we should have done it. But uh, like I said, he may have broke us. He may have been too tough and who knows? It's all hindsight. You still can do a Shania Twain album,
2: though, because you didn't work with Mutt. So that's good news.
1: (laughs) That's true. I mean, I love Mutt Lang. He's he's an incredible producer, but it was fortuitous. You know, we were supposed to work with him, and we didn't. And we took different paths. So it's all good.
0: Butch, before we move on, I just want to say how incredible it is that Clive Davis wanted to work with you, considering he's the legend who discovered Bruce Springsteen, Sly and the Family Stone, Pink Floyd, Aerosmith, and Billy Joel, just to name a few. Also, you mentioned Pete Love. The way that you and I first met, Butch, was when I was the head of the booking committee at the Wisconsin Union. That's right. I booked your band, Firetown. And I remember Pete called me. That was one of my first interactions with the tour manager. And of course, I became one myself. But I remember talking to Pete, kind of advancing the show. And he's like, what day is it again? And I'm like, how does someone not know what day it is? That is so weird. (laughs) And fast forward three years when I was on the road with Radiohead and the Bodines and others, I'm like... I never knew what day it was. And I thought back to that conversation going, okay, now I totally get what he was talking about.
1: Yeah. You know, when you start touring or playing gigs with bands, it becomes a haze basically. You know, when we started out touring, this is before the internet and before iPhones and everything. You would wake up in your hotel room and there would be a little sheet stuck under your door. And uh, I would pick it up and go, here's what you're doing today. You're getting picked up here in the lobby here. We're going here for a radio thing. We're going to sound check here. Here's the people on the guest list, blah, 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 blah. And through your whole day, and then you get up the next day, and there'd be another sheet under your door. So it's very easy to turn into lemmings, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And garbage, we have this saying that the first week you go on tour – Your IQ drops 20 points. (laughs) (laughs) However smart you were, you are no longer smart. It's because it's just, uh, I can't describe it. It's just sort of the void of being on tour where you're in this bubble. And there's a reason you do that is to keep everybody on focus and getting from point A to point B. Because really that's what touring is. You know that it's getting from point A to point B. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. So the tour manager basically just has to herd lemmings from point A to point B. If our tour manager told us to hop in a van, okay, you guys, we're going to drive off the side of a cliff now and (laughs) drop into the ocean. We go, okay, let's go, man. Let's do
0: it. I used to do that same thing, the Daily Fact Sheet, we called it, and I introduced that to some bands. Like I think with Radiohead, I was the first one to do it with them, and I remember handing Tom York his first Daily Fact Sheet, and he took it, he looked at it, and he went up to their British tour manager, who was also with us, and he's like, Tim, look at this. We need this. (laughs) (laughs) But I also used to use it as a weapon. Every Daily Fact Sheet had a quote of the day. So if somebody had pissed me off, I would think about the stupidest thing they had said, and I would put that as the quote of the day and then pass that out as kind of like, don't cross me. Otherwise, you will be sorry you did that.
1: Oh, yeah. We used to do that, too. Our production managers or our tour managers always did that. They'd have quotes on the bottom and, and usually something taking the piss out of us or self-deprecating <laughs> or reminding us how crazy everything is. But humor is good to have on tour. You need to remember to have some levity because it gets so tedious and shit happens and you have to sort of look through the day that you're in and get to the next day. So having a good tour manager is very important. We sort of have a rule in garbage for tour managers and our crew. There are no vibe crushers allowed. If anybody is a bummer or just bad attitude, they're out. You're a family that's in this bubble traveling around the US or Europe or around the world. And uh, it's important that everybody has a cool vibe.
2: Of course, Vibe Crusher shouldn't be confused with The Crusher, who was (laughs) a Milwaukee wrestling legend. But I know that The Vibe Crusher was a manager of another band,
1: right? That's true. Soul Asylum, there was an entity, a person who was in and out of their sphere, who they did not like at all. And so... (laughs) Dave Perner, I go, dude, the Vibe Crushers coming by the (laughs) studio today. So, no Vibe Crushers allowed, man.
2: (laughs) So, Butch, you produced Nirvana Nevermind, but only the song Polly was recorded at your studio in Madison, right?
1: Yeah, Nirvana came before Dave Grohl joined the band in 1990. They came to do what was supposed to be a sub pop album. Oh. That's when Chad was playing drums. Yeah, it's an
0: interesting rock and roll footnote. You're talking about Chad Channing, and
1: most people don't even know that Nirvana had any other drummer than Dave Grohl. Yeah, you know, they spent a week there, and we recorded maybe seven songs and a cover. I can't remember exactly, but Kurt blew his voice out on Thursday night. They played a show downstairs at Bunkie's, this little Italian working man's club. And there was a little pizza joint downstairs. And Nirvana played there and like 50 people showed up. Kurt sang so hard he blew his voice out. So we went in the studio the next day and he couldn't sing. So we didn't finish a couple of the tracks. And They were supposed to come back about a month later. And what happened is Kurt and Chris overdubbed the rough mixes I had made on a cassette and made 100 cassettes and gave them out to all their friends. So they basically bootlegged themselves. All of a sudden, people are going, hey, I heard this Nirvana tape. It's great. I'm like, what? Only Sub Pop is supposed to have that. How come you guys gave the tape out to everybody? <laughs> that led to a bidding war. And then Nirvana eventually signed with Geffen and then Dave Grohl joined the band. So it was a year later when I actually went in and recorded Nevermind.
2: Wow. Well, Butch, I want to just talk to you about my little history with Smart Studios way back then. In 1990, I was in a band in Milwaukee called Women's Liberace, and we were looking for a studio to record our album at, and I called your studio in Madison, Smart Studios. And I remember talking to a receptionist there and asking her, what bands are you working with? And she goes, well, we've got some really exciting acts coming up. There's a band out of Chicago called the Smashing Pumpkins. And there's a band out of Seattle that's really great. They're called Nirvana. And then I said, oh, okay, that's cool. I've never heard of those guys. Uh, How much do you charge an hour? And I think it was like a couple buck difference between your place and the place I was looking at in Milwaukee. So I decided just to stay home and save a little money. (laughs) And obviously, in retrospect, um, I regret that very much because for $5 an hour, I could have been recording my album when you were working on Siamese Dreams. And never mind. And then years later, you know, I'm in the, I was in the Falling Willendas and we recorded our second album with you guys. That's right. And I remember being in your basement and on a workbench was a tape that said, Kurt Cobain, nevermind demos. And I remember we were just standing there looking at it going, we should just take this. I mean, it's just lying out here. And of course we didn't and then you guys had a flood i think later that year and i was always wondering did that demo get washed
1: away and destroyed no that demo by the way is safe and sound but we did have a flood meanwhile you could have stolen that dat and just like bull the shit out of it man damn
2: (laughs) why didn't i do that
0: let me ask you this, Butch. I was thinking about the formation of Garbage. When were you officially a band? Was
1: it 95? I think we met Shirley the end of 94. Duke and Steve and I had been recording some music together. It was mostly 95 when we finished recording the album. So Duke was
0: at that point in his mid-40s. You were about 40. Shirley was 28. I mean, between her and Duke at least in an earlier time, that would have been a generation, right? So any Spinal Tap moments that came out of three middle-aged guys and a young female singer from Scotland getting together?
1: Well, I think Shirley was nervous flying over from Scotland to Madison, Wisconsin to record with us. The first day that we recorded, we were actually doing demos at Steve Marker's house on the west side of Madison, and... We had set up a mic in Steve's living room and Duke and Steve and I were downstairs and we had music for Queer and Vow and Stupid Girl, multiple songs that we had sort of formed the basis of the song. But we didn't really know what we wanted to do and we're like, okay, Shirley, just go ahead and sing, make something up. In hindsight, we should have sent her the songs and let her think about it for a (laughs) week or two. Maybe she could have formulated some lyrics and melodies. There's an idea. And uh, she did a take, I I can't remember, maybe it was on Vow finished the song and duke and steve and i were in downstairs we couldn't see her either because she was up in the living room and we're thinking okay what do we say hit the talk back and go well shirley um what do you think do you want to do another take and we let the mic go and she said and we didn't put the talk back on and duke and steve and i like what did she say said Shirley, what was that and we realized we could not understand her Scottish accent at all It was like I did basically what I was just saying I don't know what you want me to I, what you want me to do we're like okay well we're not sure what you should do either so we'll try another take it was a rough start to the band like Shirley was there for a couple of days it wasn't good she wasn't the same guy on the CB from the club before, was
2: she? Kind of, <laughs> no, kind of no, Okay, no. Funny.
1: <laughs> no, she flew back to Scotland. And basically, we were like, oh, that didn't work out. And then about 10 days later, she called us and said, I think I know what to do. So we flew her back. And the next time she sang all the songs, she nailed them. Like she sang queer in this completely understated vocal performance, which completely transformed the song. She did Stupid Girl. And Vol- These are all saying it in Steve's living room, by the way. And that's when I think what we knew that we had something. One of the weirdest gigs that we had was a long weekend in Serbia. We were playing a show outside of Belgrade and we arrived, I think, on a Wednesday night. We had a rare two days off. And so what happened occasionally on tour is we had a side band called the Dickel Brothers, which is basically... (laughs) Duke and Steve and me and the crew, we would put wigs on and play really bad heavy metal covers. Occasionally, Shirley would join us and put a wig on, and she would be Debbie Dickel. But she didn't <laughs> play this particular show. So we arrived in Belgrade, went to the hotel. It was weird. The first thing they did is said, we need your passports. And they took our passports. So we're like, okay, that means we can't leave the country for a while. And then I talked to the promoter, and we went to a costume store, and I bought like 15 wigs. <laughs> <laughs> and so that night... We had booked a small club, and what I did is, in advance, I sent the promoter these posters for the Dickel Brothers, which were a photo of the Allman Brothers live at Fillmore, except we (laughs) posted our heads on Greg Allman and Dwayne Allman. So if you can find a Dickel Brothers poster, it's the Allman Brothers with our heads pasted on it. And we would put featuring members of garbage and blah, blah, blah. And for whatever reason, the promoter got the word out. So we played the small club, but like 400 people showed up. It was rammed. And of course, we had a crazy night playing bad 70s and 80s metal and rock songs. We'd all switch instruments and just pull people out from the audience and have them play. It was really fun. After the show, everybody was very well lubricated. Somebody said, oh, there's a party on this barge. So we went on this barge. This is like 2 (laughs) a.m. on the river in Belgrade, and we're going up and down this river with tunes blasting and everybody's just out of their minds. All of a sudden, searchlights come and all the police pull up in these boats and they <laughs> say, everybody stand off. This is illegal. And uh, I'm thinking, well, I thought we were with the promoter and a bunch of people. It's got to be cool. Well, it wasn't cool. They made us stand there for like a half an hour. And went through everybody's papers. Do you have your papers? And of course, I didn't have my passport or anything. I'm showing them my Wisconsin ID, my driver's (laughs) license. (laughs)
2: Your Packer schedule.
1: It it was tense Uh. because they all had machine guns. They weren't fucking around. They got on the boat. And after about an hour, they let us go. They made us go back to the hotel, which is the right thing to do at that point. Lucky you didn't get a night in the luxury suite at Belgrade's version of Rikers Island. (laughs) What happened next? So- the day of the festival we got up and the festival was in Novi Sad which I think is maybe an hour and a half or so outside of Belgrade. It's called the EXIT festival and it's a very famous festival in Europe. Uh, you know it still runs to this day. It's been a festival for many years now. And it's in a fortress, like a medieval fortress. And so we were driving on a highway and it gets to a smaller road and then we pull off the smaller road and it's a dirt road and you start to drive down this path and the first thing i noticed it was like a zombie apocalypse because the oh, kids no. were really effed up they've been drinking all day and they're sort of staggering around like like a zombie apocalypse and i could see the fortress and the road got narrower and narrower and then we had to do this winding dirt road to the top of the fortress and got up there and once we got up there and looked down, it was astonishing. It's it this giant fortress. And in the middle of the fortress, there's like 30 or 40 or 50,000 kids just going mental. Wow. Wow. So it was all good. Now, there's no dressing rooms up there. So we had tents. <laughs> they put up tents on the top of the fortress on the cobblestone on the top. So we're like, okay, this is cool, man. This is going to be a great show. And I kept going out watching some of the bands playing. And uh, right before us about... 9 p.m. or so, I went out to see Ian Brown from the Stone Roses play. We were, you know, I'm a big Stone Roses fan. Shirley was a massive Stone Roses fan, so we went out to see him play. And in the distance, I saw these gigantic storm clouds rolling in and, and lightning. And I'm like, going, "Oh man, this is going to be bad, really bad." And within about 45 minutes, the storm completely blew over the fortress. And we were supposed to go on around 11 p.m. or so. And it was one of the most crazy storms ever. We ran back into the tent and we're in a tent on top of this fortress. (laughs) There's like 70, 80, 90 mile an hour winds and just massive lightning, which seems like it's right over your head, just landing right on top of the fortress. All of a sudden, all the power goes out and our Production manager Butch Allen, another Butch in the band, said, we got to shut this down. And there, our crew and the local crew is scrambling to get the lights out of the towers, get the PA everything down. It was crazy. It was like a tornado had swept through. Now it's about midnight, howling wind, and we're thinking, we can't possibly play. They've torn the whole stage down. Butch Allen went into the production tent and sat down with some of the members of the crew there, the local production, and said, okay, we're going to get out of here. You know, Obviously, we can't play. It's just a crazy storm. We need to get the van and get down this dirt road out of the fortress and get back to Belgrade. And one of the guys in the production offices opened a door and pulled out a gun and put it on wow. the table and said, you're going to play the show. And there was a pause and Butch Allen said, you're right, we're going to play the show. <laughs> <laughs> so about a minute later, he comes through the tent, flaps open and comes in. Hey, guys, we're playing the show. We're in a holding pattern. We're like, what? It's midnight <laughs> and we don't know when the storm's going to blow over. So we... sat for about two hours while this howling storm pounded us, pounded the tent. And the local reps from the label had come in, these lovely young women who were like clearly drinking a lot of shots and tequila and beer. So everybody's getting really loopy at that point. First of all, we're thinking we're not going to play. We're just going to go back to the hotel. When it became obvious we're going to play, we're like, oh, shit, we got to keep our shit together. I grabbed a piece of plastic to cover my body and went out on the edge of the fortress on the all the rocks, looking down the ledge. And it was pitch black. And when the lightning would strike, I could see thirty thousand people in there going ah, like just going crazy. (laughs) Oh boy! They were waiting for the music to continue. It was absolutely incredible. It was kind of scary. And a lot of the dudes had taken their shirts off. They're going ah, like these crazy people. And the lightning kept pounding and the hail and the rain kept coming down. At 2 a.m., it stopped. So that time between midnight and 2, we sat in this tent trying to hold the tent down from flying off the top of the fortress. (laughs) And the funny thing is Ian Brown kept coming in and said, take my picture with me, Shirley. And so I I said, okay, I took a photo, go, awesome, awesome. He would leave. He'd come back like 10 minutes later, Shirley, take your picture with me. I go, I just took it. (laughs) At least four occasions, Ian came in and said, will you take your picture with me? So I took pictures. (laughs) Anyway, at 2 a.m., the rain stopped and the lightning went away. And I went out, looked out down the edge of the into the fortress again, and there were still 30,000 kids going, "Ah," just ready to go. So our crew scrambled to get... The PA backup, they only set up like two lights on the side of the stage like we didn't have a, a proper light show and a couple of lights on the front and they got the monitors going and they got the PA going. And I think we went on at like quarter to three in the morning and we realized it was also a national broadcast on live TV in Serbia <laughs> and the camera crews fired up their cameras. And so at like three in the morning, we went, ladies and gentlemen, garbage. And we played a, a 90 minute show and it was great. Wow. It was one of the crazier shows that we've ever had. And the fans sat there in that howling storm for probably four hours and waited for us to come out and play. That's insane. It was totally surreal, totally surreal.
0: Hey, listeners, you get to decide for yourselves if there's a reason Alan and I are unheralded musicians. At the end of every episode, we play a song from his band or my band. So stick around. Butch, what is your favorite moment in
2: This is Spinal Tap?
1: Hello, Cleveland. Because we have been there in garbage many many times. (laughs) I can't tell you how many times we've got lost getting from the stage (laughs) to the dressing room or getting from the dressing room to the stage. And usually you panic more when you leave the dressing room and you can't find the stage. And that has happened to us (laughs) dozens of times over the years. I mean, Garbage has probably played over a thousand shows. I think I've probably played in all the bands I've been in about 3,000 shows. Unless you're in a small club, and you walk upstairs and get on the stage. That can happen a lot if you're in a theater or a hall or an amphitheater, because there's no sense to how the layout is. Early on in Garbage, we played a gig in Vegas, and the tour manager's like, okay, you got to all get to the dressing room at X amount of time. And it's just basically go down the elevator and go down Hall C and go up there, blah, blah, blah. All of us got <laughs> lost separately. Like, we're like, okay. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I went down the elevator to see, and then I started walking around this maze of corridors. If you've ever been in the basement of any casino in Vegas, it's insane. It's just miles and miles of corridors that go nowhere. (laughs) And uh, it happened to us a lot, and it still does. That's why I say we have a tendency these days to only follow our tour manager. He'll go, okay, we're going to the stage meet outside the dressing room at this time. And then we're going to the stage at this time because otherwise we get lost. I always felt like that was my
0: responsibility. If the band gets on stage, your day is largely successful, right? Yeah, that's a hit, man. You're a superstar <laughs> if you get the band on stage. And Spinal Tap actually says that as they're doing circles around the boiler room. That Someone says, where the fuck's Ian, right? Like <laughs> Ian was probably actually trying to do the business of the band, but what they needed is their guide at that moment.
1: I don't know. You're backstage and you're daydreaming in your head, or you're in a conversation with somebody, and so all of a sudden you walk somewhere and go, "Where am I?" It, it, you know, it's part of the nature of going on tour. Remember, you guys, your IQ drops twenty <laughs> points when you go on tour. The
2: problem, though, is it never goes back those twenty <laughs> points. <'Cause>, you know, <laughs> so if you're lucky, it'll you might buy back fifteen <laughs> of those points.
0: Tour after tour. <laughs> well, the net losses are big for me, man. I've done a lot <laughs> 3, of three thousand gigs.
2: Yeah, three thousand gigs, one point at a time.
0: So speaking of this last tour, your longtime manager, Paul Kremen, who helped us set this up with you, and we're appreciative of Paul's help, he mentioned to me that garbage tours are usually really smooth. This last one was so hard. And I know you guys had a couple of shows that got canceled due to COVID and things like that. Since this is, should be relatively fresh in mind, give us a couple of Spinal Tap moment situations off the summer 2022 tour.
1: Well, we start the first third of the tour opening for Tears for Fears. And big outdoor amphitheaters. And it's strange going out with COVID because we don't wear masks when we're on stage. But backstage, a lot of times you have to. And part of that is just the nature of trying to quarantine, make sure everybody's safe. And we made it through that first third. And then the middle third was doing our own shows. And I think the second or third show we played, this theater outside of Pittsburgh, and it was amazing. It, It was a headline show for us. And uh, there were probably 1,500 or 2,000 people in there. It was rammed, absolutely rammed. And we'd been used to playing these amphitheaters where there's the barrier and the front seats are maybe back six or eight or 10 feet or whatever. There was none of that in Pittsburgh. And it was great. The crowd was screaming so hard during the show. It was louder than the PA. All of us on stage were like, oh, my God. It was a sort of Beatlemania awesome. moment. It was hardcore garbage fans. So it was great for us. Two days later, all of us got oh, sick. No. Yeah. Except Shirley. Shirley had COVID, I think, back in February or March, and she was fine. But the rest of us all came down with COVID. During
2: COVID, you want unenthusiastic crowds. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. And you're already in a bubble and isolated from being on tour. And then you have to stay in your hotel room by yourself for a week or 10 days. And that was totally surreal. Not very much fun. <laughs> right. I, I don't really know what this has to do with Spinal Tap other than- um well, you
2: needed one. You needed a Spinal 10. <laughs> yeah.
1: The thing is, the 44 gigs that we played this summer were incredible because the audiences were amazing and we had so much fun playing. And we could see in the fans that they were also starved for hearing live music. You know, after everyone basically in isolation for two years. So it was really special. It was a great tour.
0: That's great. I know that you're close friends and you've worked with Dave Grohl quite a bit, both in Nirvana and Foo Fighters. And I heard Dave on the Smartless podcast, he literally said one of his most memorable Spinal Tap moments with Nirvana was actually during the filming of the Smells Like Teen Spirit video and that the director was just calling out for fire machines and all this kind of stuff. And they're kind of looking like, what the hell are we doing here? Does anything stand out in your mind from recording Nevermind with Nirvana that you would characterize as a spinal tap moment
1: well first of all when i saw the teen spirit video the first time i didn't like it because i had recorded and produced the song and in my head i had a vibe about what it was like and when i first saw it i thought this is not cool at all (laughs) and after seeing the video about four times i went no sam bear totally nailed it it's like teenagers teenage angst in a gymnasium you know with the punk rock cheerleaders it was great you know, the crazy night I had with Nirvana was toward the end of recording Nevermind, we went to see the butthole surfers and L7 at the Palladium in Hollywood. And unbeknownst to me, I think they all took mushrooms, like when we were in the studio. We left around 5 PM and Chris drove us over the hill, over the Hollywood Hills down to the Palladium. I
2: mean These are psychedelic mushrooms, not portobello mushrooms, right?
1: These are not portobello mushrooms. Okay. And they're going to see the butthole surfers, you know, what the fuck? Why not get out of your head, right? (laughs) And as soon as we got there, they all disappeared. And the butthole surfers were great. I loved L7 too. I ended up producing Bricks Are Heavy, their next record. That's a whole nother story. But the next day, we went into the studio and the band didn't show up, didn't show up, didn't show up. And a lot of shit went down that night. (laughs) And needless to say, I can't really say what happened to everybody, but (laughs) Kurt walked from the Palladium all the way back to the hotel (laughs) in uh, Burbank or North Hollywood, wherever (laughs) we were. They were in some serious pain the next day, but it was a great show. And I think they did that a couple occasions. They decided they wanted to go to Venice Beach and watch the sun come up and just enjoy the moment. You have to remember at the time, Nirvana was dirt poor. And all of a sudden, they got signed to Geffen. They had a credit card. They had per diems. They were actually getting money. They were living large, man. So they fully embraced that.
0: Yeah. I heard Dave say that when he got his first advance, it was very small, 500 bucks or something like that. He went out, he bought a boombox and said, felt like a real extravagance.
1: Yeah. I went over to their apartment. We rented the Oakwood Apartments, which we called the Cokewood Apartments because it was mostly young actors and musicians and, A thriving community that was partying because they were trying to access Hollywood, basically. And the band right across the pool for them was Europe. The final countdown. (laughs) And they were really good looking guys, all blonde hair, Scandinavia, and they had beautiful girlfriends. And here's Nirvana, like really scruffy, (laughs) sitting across the pool from them. And uh, it's funny to think about now, but Teen Spirit, when that came out, that kind of was the nail in the coffin for a lot of the hair metal bands that had risen out of the 80s.
0: That might have been the last time that Europe had poolside accommodations. Who knows? Yeah. Um, no, I know exactly what you're talking about, Butch, that place, because I think when the Bodines, who I also tour managed, made their first record out there with T-Bone Burnett, they stayed there as well. So I think that's where bands got hooked up if they were going to be hanging out for a little while. And
1: Yeah, the, man, that Cokewood, man. Cokewood. It's, a, it's a happening place. <laughs>
2: You're a drummer and you've worked with some of the best. You've worked with Taylor Hawkins. You worked with Dave Grohl. You worked with Jimmy Chamberlain. How do you approach other drummers?
1: I'm basically a very meat and potatoes drummer. I never really practiced to be like an incredible showman. I always approach drums from being part of a song. And uh, I still think I do that as a producer in the studio. But when I work with guys like Jimmy Chamberlain or Dave Grohl, their drum chops sometimes lead to hooks and a hook can be a fill or they do a little hiccup thing in a pattern if there's syncopation and I key on that and part of it's because I'm a drummer I guess but it's important to me that the rhythm feels good but when a drummer is good enough to play these little idiosyncratic things that are part of their personality that fits in a song I usually have a tendency to embellish them and bring them out in the song.
2: I'll just tell you, I actually asked a mutual friend of ours and a great drummer in his own right, Matt Walker, what he thinks of your playing, and he texted me this. Even with all the loops and programming, Butch's feel on the drums is a big part of Garbage's sound. The way he swings and swaggers over the electronics is difficult to replicate, because it's not just about playing tight to a click, it's about knowing the inner workings of the loops and sequences and how to glue it all together.
1: Those are very kind words from Matt. I love you, Matt. Kisses.
0: (laughs) In This is Spinal Tap, David St. Hubbins and Nigel Tufnell had been friends and collaborators since childhood, right, through multiple bands. And they have their ups and downs until it goes completely all the way down. And then, of course, comes back up when Sex Farm is a big hit in Japan and they bring everything back together. Have you ever had a complete, okay, guys, we just need a deep, long break?
1: Oh, man. It happens all the time. I mean, in Garbage, we are very self-deprecating. and we kind of take the piss out of each other for that very reason. Because any day you're in the studio or on tour, you're on the verge of becoming Spinal (laughs) Tap. All the cliches in Spinal Tap are true. And any band will tell you that. They just totally nailed it. The important thing is to realize when you're going into that moment (laughs) and then try to stop it. (laughs) And uh, that doesn't always happen. I mean, you know, like any band, Garbage, we get into arguments over songs, uh, what the direction should be like, what the vibe is like, if a part is cool or not. You know, all sorts of things. Duke and Steve and me and Shirley, all of us are extremely opinionated. So it's not easy to uh, work your way through those. Like I said, you have to recognize those and go, okay, you guys, let's try and raise our IQ five points right now and see if we can figure this out. Speaking of opinions, I had a crusty old bus driver once say to me, opinions are
0: like assholes. Everybody's got them. I don't want to see yours. You don't want to see mine. <laughs> but in the context of a band making songs, creating art, you got to share those opinions.
1: Well, we had a crusty old bus driver once who we fired him because we realized he was going to bars in the afternoon drinking beers and then driving <laughs> us like at 11 o'clock at night, which is not cool, man. No, not at all. But when he left, he said, I left something in your bunk, Red. Oh, no. That's what he said no. to Shirley. And Shirley's like, I'm not getting in my bunk. <laughs> what was it? Nobody got in the bunk. I don't know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's still there. It's still there. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. I just want to say Alex and I have a vicarious sense of pride in your accomplishments because we marinated in the same Lake Mendota waters as you did (laughs) way back before it all began. Can you tell our listeners where they can go on social or wherever to find out what you're up to?
1: Well, I just got vinyl today of the Garbage Anthology that's coming out relatively soon, and it's double vinyl, and there's a new song called Witness to Your Love that Shirley wrote after going to a funeral in Scotland. So it sounds depressing, but the lyrics are absolutely brilliant. She wrote the lyrics, and Mm. it's an incredibly cool song. Um, The Silver Sun Pickups album came out recently, Physical Thrills, and when we finished their record, we formed a side band called SSVU, Silver Sun Vigups, and we have a (laughs) single coming out, and the single's called David Lynch Has a Painting Made of Fly's Eyes. And it's pretty badass.
2: (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thank you very much.
0: Yeah, great to see you again, Butch.
2: Alex, I think if you listen to five minutes of our podcast, you know how connected we feel to America's dairy land, the state of Wisconsin. And how much we love to talk about it, whether it's with other Wisconsin natives like Butch or Brian Ritchie from the Violent Femmes or musicians who have gigged there frequently like Old Crow Medicine Show. In fact, we wore Packers jerseys during our Butch Fig interview.
0: Yeah, and in fact, he was bummed that we didn't give him the memo ahead of time (laughs) so that he could join in. But, you know, I comment often on the cheesehead diaspora. I do think that we just find Wisconsinites everywhere.
2: There's something else about it, too, is that Butch's success feels like my own not to him, but to me, you know, because I was a fan of Butch's in the 1980s, early 1980s, right? When I went to school in Madison, you know, I have a connection to Butch for almost 40 years. And you too, you dealt with him when you were booking at the union. It just gives us some kind of, this is a Yiddish word, nachas, pride in their accomplishments, because Lord knows I
0: have none of my own. Yeah, you and me both. I mean, I, that that is true. I g- got to say with Butch, it actually made me really happy to think about and learn more about a guy who literally has had success and shared in that success with some of his oldest, dearest friends. He's known Steve Marker and Duke Erickson for decades, and they've had different businesses together, different bands together, and they stuck together and have found this great success. I truly love that. I think we'd both agree that it was just a pleasure and an honor to reconnect with Butch. And now we got to go on the hunt for our next Cheesehead star. All right, here goes: Steve Miller, Boz Skaggs, Boney Vare, Shirley Manson, Honorary Wisconsinite. Cheeseheads unite. Thanks to Butch Vig for taking us on a tour from Madison to Pittsburgh to Atlanta to Belgrade to L.A. and back again. And many thanks to a person with a very unusual job title, garbage manager, Paul Kremen, for helping us to arrange this conversation. Too Much Epping Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby. Our music composer is J.K. Harrison. If you like the show, please follow us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can join our mailing list on our website. That's tmvpshow.com. And follow our socials on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at TMEP Show. Although
2: it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. This is Alan Keller. On behalf of my co-host Alex Hoffman and myself, thanks for listening. I'm going to send you off with a falling Melinda song called Sanctuary off our 1995 album Be Little, which was recorded at Butch's Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. Listen to the incredible guitar tones we got at Smart that inspired the absolutely wicked solo at the end by our lead guitarist Ted Casio. It is absolutely possessed. See you next time on the T M E P show.